Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. On oil and gas pricing, I have the following commentary. One, there is no difference between $70 and $69, but Brent this morning, uh, was trading at with a seven, you know, with a seven in front of it. Um, so it becomes newsworthy. Um, Brent generally trades about three or four dollars higher than WTI. Um, it's the international benchmark. Uh, both contracts are heavily backwardated, meaning if you if you hedge, if you're a producer and you go out and hedge. Uh, the good news is the price is pretty good. If you go out at hedge, it, you know, if you're at 66 on WTI and drop hedge, maybe you get 62 for next year. That's a pretty good price, but, um, it, it will probably continue to be backwardated. That's just a function of the way the oil market works. They're more, they're more, they're more sellers of oil forward in 22 than there are, uh, than there are buyers. Uh, the gas market's surprisingly gotten stronger. Um, and you know, it's not back to a $3 strip yet, but it's getting closer. The other interesting thing that's happened in the last couple of weeks, the LNG market, and here I'm going to use the price. It, uh, Platts calls it the JKM price. It's, it's Japan, Korea, and China. And I don't know where the M came from, but, uh, in July of 21, it was like 350 and <clears throat> U.S. exports. LNG got down to seven billion a day as compared to capacity of eleven. Um, by January, it was up to thirty. How's that for volatility? And of course, uh, all the export facilities in the U.S. were going at capacity at eleven. Um, I thought it, it dropped off pretty quickly, so the March-April price got down to like five dollars, five and a half. I thought, oh boy, here we're going. It's a round trip. We'll go back to 350 in July. But in the last couple of weeks, it's bounced. It's now 950 for June delivery. Totally unexpected. I saw no commentary that predicted that. Uh, one of the things that that's going to result in, well, the run up to 30, but also this unexpected run up to 950. Uh, there are some facilities under construction. Uh, one, uh, train six at Sabine Pass, Chenier. I think train four, I think, at Chenier, Corpus Christi. An additional train, uh, at, uh, Freeport. Uh, a second facility of what is called Venture Global in Louisiana. Uh, I think more capacity at Sempra. Add it all up. It probably comes to another three Bs a day. Um, uh, so. And capacity would be 14. Uh, <clears throat> I, I thought the middle of last year is all being kind of lagged, you know, because it didn't look very interesting. Uh, anyone who'd signed a contract was going to lose money, uh, picking gas up at, you know, like 250 in the U.S. and, and liquefying it and taking it to, uh, uh, Asia or Europe. Uh, this is, this is pretty strong though. And, uh, it will help U.S. demand. I mean, the rest of the U.S. demand is all flat. A residential goes up and down with the weather, you know, whether or not you've had a cold winter or a warm 
summer uh, industrials kind of flat as a pancake. Uh, 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 Mexican exports, interestingly enough, are up. So uh, the gas market's looking a little better. The main problem is supply, and the main problem in supply is the Marcellus, uh, <clears throat> has gone from nothing to be a third of all our production. But things look a little more constructive on the gas side. In terms of how the stocks are behaving, I really think <laughs> I'm going to be rather definite on this. I don't think you want to own stocks in the oil and gas business if the debt is too much more than one times cash flow. So that limits you to EOG, Pioneer, Cabot, and uh, I'm not sure there is another one. It used to be Concho, but Concho got merged into Conoco. Does that mean that Diamondback's a bad company or Simrex or Magnolia? No, but I really think that in order to succeed in the public market, as an upstream company, your debt can't be more than one times cash flow, and uh, and and you have to be able to increase your production using only two thirds of cash flow. So that will allow you to have a dividend because you're increasing production, allow you to increase the dividend. That way, you can be competitive with uh, you know other stocks like you know uh, well established stocks like Microsoft, which has a dividend, or Apple has a dividend. Um, and now I want to swing into two things I want to cover, uh, and, and I want to focus on dividends. Um, I believe that if a, a management and a uh, board are competent, they will have a dividend, and they will try to run the business to increase the dividend 8 or 9% a year. One company that does that, and, you know, the, the Lawrence family, again, away from Brian R's partnership, um, uh, has a full position in Goldman Sachs. Um, I'm not saying that Goldman Sachs in the 300s is a good investment. It's now trading at a pretty significant premium to its book value. It was much better investment when it was book value, but it just illustrates the importance of a dividend. Goldman Sachs, because of changes in 0809, of, uh, you know, <clears throat> what you could do with your balance sheet, you're really not able to have a hedge fund within an investment bank or a commercial bank, uh, anymore. And, uh, and so the balance sheet is kind of flatlined at about, uh, a trillion dollars. And that means that all your earnings can be dividended or used to repurchase stock. You don't. Your equity base, which is around 70, 75 billion, is enough to support that balance sheet. So that means your, if your, if your return on equity is, uh, 14% to pick a number, which is a little high. They have been running 11 or 12, although they had just a sensational first quarter. So let's say, and they say they want to get to 14 or 15%. That means it's a 14 or 15% free cash yield. 15% doubles your money in five years. Now, you are paying a premium over book value, so you have to watch that. But uh, whether it's paid out in a dividend or used to retire stock, who cares? Um, so that's, that's, you know, that's, it's a good illustration of why, why you want to have free cash flow and the advantage, I believe, in terms of discipline and showing management confidence of having a, having a dividend. And I think when you have a dividend, 
you should have it increase. Like if, if something's trading at four or five percent yield and the dividend's increasing eight percent a year, uh, you you kind of what a, a, a rough way to think about how you're going to do or are doing is you take the growth rate and the dividend and the dividend yield uh, and add them together, and that should you know other things being equal, that should be your compound rate of return. If you can, on a consistent basis, uh, increase combination of dividends and the capital appreciation 15% a year, that doubles your money in five years. Uh, in 10 years, that's four times your money. So um, that is what you want to strive to do. Now, <clears throat> the next company I want to highlight before we turn it over to Mike is uh, CarMax. Um, CarMax definitely has free cash yield. Uh, it's been a terrific investment. Um, uh, it's been overshadowed in the past year and a half or two years by Carvana. Uh, the difference between they're both in the business of of uh, selling used cars and in a kind of a, uh, a uh, you know trying to do a better job for the for the customer, try to be more efficient, try to use technology. Um, uh, Carvana has no locations. Um, uh, CarMax has has uh, has uh, you know about two hundred and twenty or thirty superstores, as they call them. Carvana skipped that step, so it's all over the internet. Carvana's been a rocket. I mean, it's up five or six times. Where CarMax has doubled. Um, uh, Brian R. and his partnership. Uh, he and Jim, Jim Goshen have a full position, which they cut back as it's gone up in Carvana. Uh, other Lawrence family accounts here, we have a more than full position in CarMax, which we've owned for three or four years. I kind of prefer CarMax because rather than projected free cash flow, it has free cash flow. I mean, the company, the company, um, has cash flow before for CapEx of, you know, a billion six and it's CapEx and taxes and whatnot take about half of that. So you have eight or nine hundred million dollars of free cash flow. Now, I'm happy, happy CarMax stockholder. It does not pay a dividend, uh, but it does use its free cash flow to buy in stock, uh, lots of stock. So, um, um I mean, they're buying, they're buying somewhere between seven and eight hundred million dollars of stock a year. Um, and, uh, you know, so you can't really complain. I would prefer to do both, to have a dividend and buy in stock. Um, but, you know, some people think a dividend is double taxed. In other words, you pay tax on the corporate level and then you pay, uh, as a, uh, as a stockholder. And they're just absolutely against. A stock that I don't own, that I know a number of people on the phone own, Generac doesn't pay a dividend either. Um, very happy, don't want to discuss today, happy Amazon stockholder doesn't pay a dividend. Happy Alphabet stockholder doesn't pay a dividend. Whereas Microsoft and Apple have gone over to dividends. And with that, I've used more than half of the 30 minutes. So uh, we're going to turn it over to Mike. And Mike is going to... Uh, uh, most of its discussion around two stocks. Over to you, Mike. All right. 
Perfect. Thanks, Hunt. Um, actually, before we dive into that, I kind of want to pull on your dividend thread a little bit because there's some proposed tax changes. And I, my understanding, and I'd like to get your quick two cents on it, is that we potentially could see a change in the way companies return cash to shareholders um, as a result of any changes in the capital gains tax. Because in one sense, uh, giving people dividend or giving shareholders dividends and giving shareholders buybacks accomplishes the same thing. But as you mentioned, the, the dividends are sort of treated as a double taxation, where if we move to a different capital gains tax, we, there may be a, a more optimal balance between those two. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to, uh, we'll put it on the docket for next, next week, and, but or next Wednesday, but, the problem with corporate taxation in the U.S. is it doesn't raise much money. Um, the amount of money, cash payment of taxes by U.S. companies is less than 1% of the GNP, which if you think about it, is disgusting. It's less than 5% of all the revenues raised by the federal government. And, uh, you know, I, I voted for Trump. I will... I will vote for whoever the Republicans put up in, uh, in 24. Um, but, uh, I have to admit that, that corporate income taxes have to be tightened up. And, uh, there are zillions of companies. I'm sure you've all seen the list who pay no tax at all. I mean, Amazon, favorite stock, you know, up, I don't know not to brag or anything, but up seven or eight times on our Amazon position. I haven't, haven't, I think they paid tax in 20. I have to go back and look at the 10K, but in 2019 paid no income tax, even though they had about 25 or 30 billion of free cash flow. I mean, to a certain extent, that's lobbying. That's, that's, uh, you know, when, when congressmen have to raise millions of dollars and senators have to raise tens of millions of dollars, one of the ways they raise money is by people who have an interest in how tax legislation is drafted and how regulations are crafted. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, well, what Trump ran as an outsider saying Washington was a swamp. I would say U.S. taxes of, uh, of, uh, or taxes, income taxes on U.S. corporations. I, I mean, it's at the very least a swamp. And between now and next Wednesday, I'll try to think of a couple of other words. But um, I, I think Mike has a point. If, if, if capital gains rates are increased, which seems likely, uh, the distinction between ordinary income, which a dividend is, and capital gains will be reduced. The double taxation is really kind of a problem. But you have to admit, a lot of the companies we own interest in don't pay any taxes. But you're right. I've, I've, I've taken too much of Mike's time. Oh, back to you, Mike. Uh, no worries. Thank, thanks. I, I, I'm going to start with Apple because they had earnings last week and there's a pretty uh, important lawsuit that started on Monday. Um, so I'll do my best to get through that and then I'll quickly touch on semiconductors uh, afterwards. So, uh, so first of all, Apple had uh, very good earnings, um, a lot of Tailwinds related to the pandemic are still persisting. They released the iPhone 12 
the 5G penetration, actually, this is straight from their conference call. They said on a global level is very low. The U.S. and China are kind of the, the leading markets where 5G penetration is there. So they see it as a, this is uh, they've talked about this as a super cycle for the iPhone. Um, and it seems to be playing out in that perspective. Um, also, also, interestingly, their uh, gross margins are up. Um, so Apple's been a pretty long-term holding uh, for us, so I tend to stay on top of it. Uh, most, One of the most uh, kind of interesting, threatening sort of things to the company right now is a, uh, a lawsuit brought by Epic Games. They, they're, it's a, a game called Fortnite that they own that is on the Apple App Store. And I guess the long story short is Epic wasn't happy with paying 30% of revenue to Apple. Um, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting case because they're not, um, the, the, the suit is not specifically about the app stores or specifically about Fortnite, but rather um, how a monopoly is defined, specifically how to read the Sherman Act. So, you know, it's, it's not your normal lawsuit. That being said, like the, the main the main crux of the case is that uh, Epic doesn't think that Apple taking thirty percent of their revenue is fair. Um, so I, I'm going to quickly give a little bit of background on how that seventy thirty split for for the App Store um, developers uh, came about and what's likely to to come of this lawsuit, or if anything. So back when, um, um, well, I guess the 70-30 split was really kind of revolutionary because compared to the share of revenues um, taken by somebody like GameStop or Walmart, a retailer that sells a physical video game, um, a 30% flat commission is a, was a home run. And if you look at the competitors to the App Store, when Apple entered the 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 market, and this is actually straight from a slide in uh, their presentation to the court, Apple was on par, set that 30% rate basically to be the same as the lowest priced app store on the market, um, which back then would have been right in line with PlayStation where it is today, Xbox, Windows, Steam, and a handful of others. Um, So over time, I guess everybody else is sort of aggregated to that same 70-30 split. Um, the, the case brought by, by Epic is that Apple is a monopoly, and it goes back to this definition of how narrow or wide is the market in which Apple plays. Um, so I think there's, there's a, an interesting development that will probably support Apple uh, not being defined as a monopoly in that Microsoft last week announced to the plans to reduce its commission on PC games from 30% to 12%. And what that signifies is that there is actually competition among mar- marketplaces. So uh, Microsoft making that move basically says, hey, developers, come here, promote your games on PC because we're going to take less revenue from you. Um, and I think that's ultimately where this lawsuit will will boil down to. Um, I do think it will be pretty easy for Apple's lawyers to make Epic and the the company look like um, some whiny 
billionaires uh, <laughs> complaining okay. about some fees that they're paying. Um, and yet a lot of their growth was due to success on uh, through the app store. Um, hey, hey, Mike, just a question. Um, I just from reading about the lawsuit, is it true that some apps in the app store, um, uh, not necessarily games, uh, are for free or at lower uh, lower percentages, of lower split to Apple? So earlier, actually, at some point during 2020, Apple set up a uh, basically a small business program. So any app that generates less than a million dollars in revenue, or maybe it's any app if the revenue is less than a million dollars, I'm not sure the actual distinction, only pays 15% instead of 30%. So, right. uh, so even Apple has changed their their market dynamics in or their pricing in order to match the market dynamics. Right. And just another question, and then we'll get on to the chips. Um, my understanding is that a game or another app, you're you're not exclusive with Apple. In other words, if you want to put it out on, you know, in Google's App Store, or Microsoft, you can. That's exactly right, and that is what the vast majority of app makers do is that they will make uh, an Apple version. If it's a, it's, if it's an app designed specifically for a phone, they'll make a Google version and they'll make an Apple version. So you can get it both on Android and iPhone. Um, if it's a game, you're very likely in, in the case of Fortnite, this is, this is actually very dis distinctive. It's not just on Android and, and iOS. It's also on PlayStation, Xbox, um, and a bunch of other uh, channels. In fact, uh, Apple made the point in the case that you should really be suing PlayStation because something like 60% uh, of their revenue is subject to Sony PlayStation's revenue share agreement um, as opposed to Apple's. So, um, so, so that, that, that was kind of an interesting hook in the case, at least a, a, a breach of logic, if you will. Right. Interesting. But we can't, we can't, if we're going to discuss specific things, we can never go 30 minutes without talking about chips. It doesn't have to be NVIDIA, but we have to spend at least five minutes on chips, I think, given the, given all the impact that, that chips have. You know, I mean, when you see uh, General Motors, Volkswagen, uh, closing factories because of chip shortages, we have to have at least five minutes every 30 minutes on chips. So over to you. Perfect. That's a that's a perfect lead-in because uh, there's a, a good article in the Financial Times uh, earlier this week, or maybe it was end of last week, um, and they interviewed some uh, one of the a CEO of one of a major semiconductor supplier to the automotive companies, and um, I think we've talked about this in the past that what happened during COVID is the automakers, specifically General Motors, Ford, a lot of the American ones and the German ones, they freaked out when COVID happened. And they tried, they basically took cover, said, hey, we, we've been through the financial crisis before. It was really, really bad. We got to do everything we can to, to uh, batten down the hatches. Well, they did that. And um, because of the dynamics of the semiconductor industry, the fabs that produce for them, um, in a way, are left holding the bag. 
because the automakers have so much power because they purchase in such large volumes. The semiconductor fabs typically, um, and the way the CEO describes it, he's like, if, if automakers expect the semiconductor suppliers to be the bank, in other words, having to support their working capital, they can forget about it going forward, um, which is an interesting shot across the bow from a company who does 70% of their revenue with the automotive industry. So, and, and this ties back to just-in-time manufacturing and, and, and all of that that's, that's pervasive through the industry. You're going to have, you're going to see a much different structure going forward, I believe. Um, right. Now, now what, 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 um, one of my concerns uh, has been that um, the chip shortage will impact uh, oh, stock sale, Google, Amazon. Um, but it looks as though the shortages, if, if you're, if you're, if you're a high end, in other words, if you're a, a you know, fairly high price per per chip uh, or chip assembly or however you price it uh, with Taiwan Semiconductor, you, you know, they take care of you. It's the, the lower end, lower, probably probably lower margin chips that, uh, that, that wind up, uh, you know, GM or Volkswagen being short of and not being able to complete cars. Is that is that a fair assessment, especially based on looking at the interim reports we've seen so far in the chip industry? That that is a fair assessment. So when you think about a company like Nvidia, there's less risk for Nvidia specifically because there's just less moving parts in the products they sell, or I shouldn't say moving parts, but less different types of silicon um, within their products. Um, so. I, it goes to different types of customers, right? Uh, Apple, for example, has pre-purchased all of Taiwan Semiconductor's five nanometer capacity uh, through the end of this year and maybe beyond. Uh, and they're already pre-purchasing uh, three nanometer. So it, it's the really strong customers, the larger you are, the more likely you can secure your supply chain. Now it's not 100% because you think about an iPhone and all the different chips that go inside of an iPhone. And they talked about this a little bit on the earnings call last week. Um, there are some things that Apple is going to run into. And I think they mentioned specifically um, iPad and Mac may run into some supply chain issues in this quarter. They've, they've forecasted it in and they're still looking fairly good. Uh, but the impact to Apple versus Ford is significantly different. Um, and again, it really boils down to the, the differences in the market dynamics. Right. Good. Well, we've run through our 30 minutes. And uh, unless unless we get a lot of emails in between Wednesdays, we're going to continue with this format. And uh, Michael will do a couple and I'll do a couple and and we'll, uh, we'll keep moving it around. Please, we're talking about these companies. We're just discussing things that we think are newsworthy or interesting. We're not saying of all the companies we own, this is the one you want to buy. You have to make up your own mind on that kind of stuff. In the meantime, everyone uh, stay healthy, and, uh, and we'll talk next Wednesday. Take care. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, 
Nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.